I'm Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. One of the hardest parts of reading the Bible and becoming a person who is invested in and loves Scripture and allows Scripture to change us is when we get to parts of sacred Scripture that don't make sense. Or we've heard something about this particular part of sacred scripture, this particular passage or this particular word, and we have this entire understanding of it. And then we realize we've been wrong the whole time because the internet told us wrongly, or we heard a bad homily, or you didn't listen to this podcast fast enough, whatever it might be. Sometimes scripture trips us up. And so here at the start of kicking off our entire Ave Explores the Bible series, we wanted to sit down with an actual scripture scholar, somebody who's got the doctorate, who's been through all the classes, who knows the ancient languages, who's read the text, not just in translation, who's teaching the text to future priests right now. Father William L. Burton, OFM, is perhaps one of the nicest people I've ever had the chance to meet. You know, we, we do these podcast interviews via Zoom, and I felt like we were sitting in the living room together, having coffee, sharing stories, learning from one another. I was immediately captivated by his easy presence and style, the way that he spoke so lovingly about Scripture, the way that he knows this text. I mean, and that is what he is. He is a Scripture scholar. He's also the provincial counselor for the Franciscan province of the Sacred Heart a member of the Board of Trustees of the Catholic Theological Union. He is a current professor at a seminary, as well as a regular speaker who travels around the country, around the world, really doing everything from parish missions to actually teaching sacred scripture in depth. He served as a frequent pilgrimage guide throughout the Holy Land, through Greece, through Turkey. He knows this thing called the Bible that you and I are trying to dig more and more into. And he's the author of a book, that I really couldn't put down, Abba Isn't Daddy and Other Biblical Surprises, What Catholics Really Need to Know About Scripture Study. And so in this conversation today, you know, Father Burton, we dig into why reading Scripture matters, which we've been talking about in all of our episodes and in this entire series, but what are some of those hang-ups? What are some of those things that prevent people from actually digging into Scripture, and how can we fix those problems? How can we find a way around those hang-ups? Father Burton digs into the meanings of, of words and, and why certain things in Scripture are sometimes confusing and what does it mean when this or that contradicts itself and, and why ultimately as a Scripture person, and that sounds kind of silly, so let me clarify, somebody who really has invested in Scripture and become a person of the Bible, why ultimately this should matter to us in community. So if you enjoy this conversation, and I'm certainly sure that you will, you can click on over to AveMariaPress.com, find all of the other content that we're creating. If you're in need of a good Bible, the Ave Catholic Note-Taking Bible is available on Ave Maria Press's website. Use code AEXBIBLE for 20% off for free shipping as well. And become a person of sacred scripture. Listen to this conversation today with Father Burton, and you will be convinced even more, I think, that the Bible is worth reading. And what parts of sacred scripture are surprising, shocking even, challenging, but ultimately show us the love that the Lord has for us. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with Father William L. Burton about the surprising parts of sacred scripture. Well, Father Bill, thank you so much for joining us on Ave Explores. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. 
So our big question that we always ask folks when they join us on the show is if we were to bump into each other in an elevator and have a five-minute ride, it's a big, big building, (laughs) and we were to just get to chatting and I would learn some things about you, what would I have discovered? Who would I have discovered in that elevator and in that ride together? Who am I chatting with today? Uh, You're chatting with a 68-year-old Franciscan friar who teaches and has taught scripture for about 30 years in uh, undergrad and graduate programs, currently in Baltimore teaching at St. Mary's Seminary University, the oldest seminary in America, founded in 1791. And somebody who is one of these people, my father told me years ago, if you like your work, you never have to work a day in your life. That's me. I've been so lucky that I found a job that I also very deeply enjoy doing. So Mm -hmm. contented uh, friar. And how did you arrive at the Franciscans? Was that kind of, uh, you know, that vocation story of Franciscans is always one of my favorite to hear. (laughs) But mine really, Kate, is very banal. I mean, I was, uh, (laughs) well, we moved to a town in Illinois and into a Franciscan parish when I was, what, I guess, eight. My mother worked at the parish office as a secretary and bookkeeper. And after school, she didn't get off until five. And I finished school at three. I would go over and wait for her. She said, well, you're not going to just sit there and do nothing. Go help Brother Martin. You know, Brother Martin was the sacristan and cleaned the friary. And it was a very big, big friary. So I, I just kind of got absorbed into Franciscan life from literally age of eight. Wow. And I just, I loved being around them. They seemed happy. They they got along with each other. They were funny. They're just so funny. And they ran a high school seminary. This was downstate Illinois, and the high school seminary is up by Chicago. I'm what we call a lifer. I started high school freshman, then the college seminary, and then the novitiate, you know, that kind of thing. I think I was kind of born a Franciscan. I found mm. the group that I melded with almost seamlessly, really. Not the other friars I've lived with I mean, might not say that, but <laughs> from my point of view, it's always been a very good fit. <laughs> and so, and now you teach at the seminary. I mean, Franciscan life, it's always so different. I have a Franciscan friend. He taught for a time and now he's kind of a, an itinerant. He travels and he speaks. I have another Franciscan friend who's a college campus minister. You're in the seminary life teaching scripture. Where did that love of scripture come from? I mean, was that an assignment given to you? Did you get to kind of raise your hand and say, this is what I want to do? No, 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 no. (laughs) No, it's both. I loved scripture from that high school seminary I went to my freshman year. I remember so clearly his name was Father Kurt Hartridge. He was our first freshman year religion teacher. And he was extremely excited about what he was teaching. I mean, to the point that he would literally stand on the desk (laughs) <laughs> he would jump around. He would pick up your desk when he's trying to make a point. about It was Old Testament, I, I remember. And I really didn't quite understand exactly what he was teaching us. But I thought, if this engages this otherwise normal adult man as deeply as that, I should really start paying attention. And that really was the bug. I got bit right then. But when I went to the seminary, when I was in graduate school, about to be ordained, I had been planning that I would work in a different tack. And beginning of my last year at the seminary, the provincial came to visit. A provincial is a Franciscan word for boss. <laughs> and uh, he said, we want you to get a doctorate. I was like, what? <laughs> well, I, I had this other plan, Father. I was going to do, oh, no, no, no. We want you to get a doctorate. I said, well, then what? He said, no, I don't care. But we need more doctors in the province. And we always send people off every couple of years. 
you have a meeting tomorrow with the dean to talk about getting your doctorate. Wow. And so I, I talked to the dean and I actually said to him, anything but scripture, because scripture has such heavy language requirements. Mm-hmm. You got to do all these dead languages. And he said, well, that's funny you'd say that because that's just the thing I thought you might be good at. It's like, oh, no, wow. no. no. <laughs> so then it was kind of where should I go? It was Italy or Germany, go to Rome or I got to go to the Biblicum in Rome, which was one of the finest schools the church has. So I, it was horrible work. <laughs> it really was such hard work. Precisely because the languages, they're just so right. hard for me anyway. But I just kept getting deeper and deeper down a rabbit hole that was so comfortable and felt like such a good fit. Uh, mm-hmm. And I've not stopped ever since, really. I love to hear that. I mean, a lot of times you you meet a scripture scholar or you read a book and you're like, oh, well, they just know everything about the Bible and they just must be swimming around in it. But it's comforting to know that it is hard, even oh. for the scholars, that you know, there's nobody, I think, on planet Earth that can claim mastery of the whole thing. And that humility that you're approaching scripture study with, as you began to study, let's say the languages, for example, what began to really happen in your heart and your mind? Because scripture scholars often talk about, you know, it's their area of study, but then it's also something you grow to love. Oh, yeah. I mean, what yeah. captivated you about all of it? Well, first of all, I mean, as a, a Catholic and as a Christian, and as a Franciscan, I, I love God. And this book and the study of the book is about the object of my affection. So that's Mm -hmm. an automatic draw. But there too, I remember very clearly sitting in, it must have been my first or second year Greek class, reading a baptism account in Mark's gospel in the Greek. And it just suddenly kind of popped. I wasn't thinking of it in English. I wasn't translating in my head. There's a phrase about the heavens cracked open. And the English word doesn't quite capture, but I, I got it in the original Greek word, which I knew. And it would say, oh, my gosh, it's just suddenly it was like looking in two dimensions and suddenly it popped into three dimensions. You know, you put the blue and red glasses on in the movie, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's depth. There's background. That was a real moment, a very mm-hmm. important one for me. And same thing I remember in, in Rome. It was so fun. I was at, at our we have a big parish the franciscans have a big shrine to saint anthony there and i had mass there that morning and the reading was from paul's letter to the romans and as i'm walking to the ambo i'm realizing oh it was the letter to you people mm. this, this mm-hmm. is rome the same yeah. city this is a letter sent to your ancestors it was just the language study and those experiences of my study make me feel so much closer to the text than i did before you know yeah like watching a movie without needing the subtitles, yeah, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, that familiarity with Scripture. And a lot of, I've found, and as we've done different episodes with other people, scholars, people who just love reading the Bible, kind of across the gamut, a lot of times Catholics seem intimidated by sacred Scripture. So my my mom's a convert, and when she became Catholic, like her hardest thing and she's told me the story, I obviously was not alive when she converted, was giving up her Protestant Bible for a Catholic one. And the priest that welcomed her into the church and confirmed her at the Easter Vigil said, you don't have to, like, you can have two. Like, you're allowed to keep the Bible of your childhood, which you're so attached to. Like, there's no rule against it. Um, And it's one of her most prized possessions. She's very familiar with it. I don't think my dad, who was born and raised Catholic, owned a Bible until after they got married. Why do you think there's some of that hesitation, that that fear of sacred scripture, a lot of times from Catholics? 
Well, it's not by accident. I mean, I think it was a matter of a kind of policy. I mean, centuries ago, certainly the Reformation shook Roman Catholicism to its core. And rightly or wrongly, many diagnosed the problem was this personal access to scripture that allowed, quote, unlettered people to read an ancient text in a translation and not really be well educated or schooled in it, and therefore interpreting it incorrectly from our point of view, misunderstanding what they were reading, memorizing verses and knowing literally chapter and verse, but not really understanding the profound challenges that an ancient text would present, that Catholics really truly were, now maybe not officially from Vatican documents, but certainly the parishes and the people in the pew got the message, Protestants read the Bible, you study your catechism. You know, we mm. don't we don't do that. In fact, we think this is not for the faint of heart or the faint of mind, you know. And they went astray because they didn't follow scholarly and formed instruction, that kind of thing. So my parents' generation certainly had that. We had a Bible, but it was for keeping important documents in, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> baptism, marriage, that kind of thing. Yeah. And it wasn't until the Vatican Council really that it officially has been very clear, although although it had been a part of church teaching, really, certainly mm-hmm. since 1943 in Pius XII and maybe even Leo XIII in 1890s, that Catholics have got to catch up with their mm-hmm. Protestant brothers and sisters when it comes to the Bible. We still have a long way to go. The illiteracy rate, biblical illiteracy amongst Catholics is just terrible. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. And we all mm-hmm. know that our Protestant neighbors, you know, and they oh, judge yeah. us. You don't know the Bible. You know, I can tell you what it says in chapter two mm-hmm. of Second Samuel. And, uh, yeah, it's a problem. yeah. So as we're correcting that problem, I mean, you've done some great work, not just in the seminary, but your book, Abba Isn't Daddy and Other Biblical Surprises, the work that you've done, the writing that you've done. How can we kind of change the tide? I mean, beyond just like Bible in a Year from Father Mike Schmitz and doing this podcast where we're encouraging scripture reading or like the sale of biblical journals. I mean, yeah. what is it that can encourage people? How do you think we start that? Well, I was, I used to do, you know, describe one of your Franciscan friends who was on a traveling circuit. I did that for several years myself, and I would go to parish Bible study programs for a week, and then I'd fly to some other town. And uh, I still remember a man, I think it was in Indianapolis, complained, he said, Father, I've been a Catholic all my life. How come I've never heard the stuff that you're teaching us? And I said, well, I got here as quickly as I could. <laughs> <laughs> But at the same time, I said, but you are not illiterate. Mm -hmm. There are bookstores filled with books. There are periodicals and magazines. Go to your pastor. Go to your parish. Ask good, solid resources. If you have the interest, we have the means to satisfy that hunger. There are, you know, you had your second grade arithmetic that grew into algebra. Well, the same thing can happen with your religious studies, in particular with the Bible. You know, you start out with an easier book, and if it draws your interest, and you go to another more engaging, you know, that kind of thing. They're afraid, I think, if they would just get some guidance from a parish Bible study or from mm-hmm. the pastor or an associate or someone who knows what they're doing in the parish staff to guide them. Because I think, okay, many Catholics have the desire, but they feel, and I'm, I think it's more feeling than fact, they feel so ignorant. I'm afraid I'm going to pick the wrong book. I'm afraid mm-hmm. I'm going to take the wrong first steps. Well, parish staff can help us get over that and start leading the horse to the water. And mm-hmm. and then the, the horse will, you know, find that it likes the water and get it on its own. That's But my problem uh, that I've run into, not I think maybe so much this generation, but previous generation of clergy 
many of them would tell me when I'd come to do a Bible study for the parish, oh, Father, of all the courses I had in the seminary, I hated the Bible courses. Mm. I don't know exactly how they were taught, but boy, it sure turned off a lot of older clergy. I think that's ending. I think the last 10, 15 years, that isn't so much the case. So it's the person, my point of saying that isn't to criticize the clergy before me, <laughs> but the parishioner who wanted that kind of guidance would come to a man who said, you know, honestly, I, I don't know what mm-hmm. to tell you, you know, but he wouldn't mm-hmm. maybe wouldn't want to say that. You know, the other thing that, that concerns me, so Catholics know that they don't know the Bible and they have a friend who lives next door or a colleague at work who's a Protestant and really is into Bible study and their Protestant traditions, and they hear stuff from them and they somehow think oh, that's the teaching of the Bible, or that's what mm-hmm. the church teaches, the end times stuff, the Left Behind series of books, that kind of stuff. So someone gives a copy of a Left Behind, one of the many volumes in the Left Behind series <laughs> to a Catholic who doesn't know anything about the book of Revelation and just reads it and thinks, oh, well, this is a graphic depiction of the truth of the biblical book, you know, the book of Revelation or Isaiah, whatever it is. Well, it's not, but they mm-hmm. don't hear any contradictory voice from the pulpit, you know, or from their Catholics. So they just think, oh, well, this is what the church teaches about, mm-hmm. you know, the end of the world or something. It's like, well, no, not by a long shot. But yeah. So it's, I mean, correcting those kinds of things and, and that, because scripture definitely has a place in the zeitgeist and there's definitely like cultural, scriptural influences in the back. Oh. I mean, John 316 is everywhere and, everywhere. and like everybody just watch knows a football that. game. <laughs> Right, right. So you wrote a book kind of not just as like a correction to that, but saying like, you know what, scripture on the surface has some things, but then we can go to that next level. We can go into the language. We can go into the history. We have an episode coming up later in the season on the book of Revelation with Jeff Cavins, specifically about, okay, like here are the, here are the problems. Here's the misunderstanding. Here's what it actually means. Scholarship. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And, and trying to kind of turn the tide. Again, the Bible in a Year podcast has been hugely helpful for a lot of people. But, you know, some of the common mistakes that get made, the, the title of your book, in fact, Abba doesn't mean daddy. So I'm curious, what does it mean? Well, I mean, that's one of the big ones, right? What are some of those big mistakes that you often find maybe in the seminarians you're educating and training, maybe among the folks that you've visited with and talked to? Let's, well, you know, what's the biggest misconception that you bump into? That's one that I found particularly irritating, the sand <laughs> and the oyster that just kept aggravating me because within one year of Hebrew, I knew that Abba cannot mean daddy. And I thought mm. the people who started this knew Hebrew much better than I did. How in the world did this get started? And then found out in the early 80s, there had been a very scholarly article refuting this idea. This was like in 83 or 84. And in 2000, 2010, 2020, you still hear this all the time mm-hmm. and, you know, from sermons and, and books. And it's like, so that was like a personal vendetta I had. It's like, <laughs> this is not that difficult to understand in order to correct. And even the German scholar who started this in like 1949 wrote a retraction. At least mm. he really backpedaled. But it's like, you know, the headline in Sunday's paper has a retraction on Tuesday and it's on page 34 in the corner, you know. The retraction never caught on, but that first bombshell kept reverberating. Mm -hmm. So that's one. I mean, I don't think that's really that big a deal unless some misinformed person makes it a big deal. But that's one that always just caught my goat. So what does it mean? Everybody always says it. I mean, I've been guilty of, of saying it in a talk I know, before so because did that's I, just so did I. what I assumed it meant. So the idea, I think, is 
Jesus calls Father God Daddy, right? Like right. that's the and that, so it's like it's showing intimacy, that, that intimacy right. and that affection, familiarity, so, right? So what does it actually mean? I mean, honestly, this is going to sound a little teacherly of me or professorial. Oh no, please, but, please. But I mean, I mean it to make a point. So if I didn't know what that meant, because it's a language that's removed from me by centuries and thousands of miles, that culture is far away. Ah, what does St. Paul say that word means? Because he uses it in his Mm -hmm. letters. And every time he uses it in the Greek original text of the epistles, it's written in Greek letters, A, B, B, A. And then he says, it is, that is, ho pater in Greek. Ho is the article, the, pater is father in Greek. So in Paul's mind, he probably knew Aramaic, and he certainly knew his Greek. So when he uses the phrase, quoting Jesus or referring to that relationship that Jesus has, that we now as Christians and followers of Jesus have with God, ha pater, Abba, he translates that Aramaic word Abba, not as daddy, but a formal, the father with the article, which is in Greek is kind of an honorific. It's an honorific mm. title. To me, that's the first clue that ought to make give us pause. Well, Paul knew Greek and Aramaic better than we do, certainly better than I do. And there's a perfectly good Greek word for daddy. There's three or four words used, which we know were used in the first century AD by mm-hmm. native Greek speakers, patridion, papias, papion. There were these diminutive child addresses of father which Paul certainly would have known. But when he encounters Abba, he doesn't translate it as patridion or papias. He translated it as this formal hopater, the father. So to me, that starts the breadcrumbs leading me down the rabbit hole to say this has gotten shifted pretty drastically from its original meaning. James Barr is a, was a great biblical scholar who wrote this big article in 1984 refuting the notion. And he wrote another article later, again, for the same reason, because he kept encountering good, you know, thinking people who have heard this so often. So the Hebrew word for father is ab, Mm. like an abraham, father of a great nation, ab. Mm. And the article in Hebrew is the letter, sounds like an H that goes on the front of the word, like ha'ab. But in Aramaic, a very Semitic language, very close to Hebrew, the article goes at the end of the noun, not in the front. It's joined to the end of the word, not the front of the word. So ab, ah, is the father Mm. in Aramaic. That's what the word meant at the time of the New Testament, the time of Jesus, and at the time that Paul refers to it only 30, 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So how it became misconstrued to be a diminutive and an affectionate term is because modern Israeli-speaking children Mm -hmm. use the word Abba as daddy. That's true. The early 20th century, the reformation of the Hebrew language for the state of Israel that got reinvented, Mm -hmm. you know, by the Zionist movement in Europe that brought Hebrew back as a living language, that word meant daddy and this German scholar, Joachim Jeremias, lived in Jerusalem. His father was a Lutheran pastor in Jerusalem, and he would have grown up as a student in Israel, hearing children 
yelling, mm. oh, Abba, 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 daddy, 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 and just incorrectly conflated the two. Oh. It's spelled the same way, but it's, it's not the same term at all. Yeah. It's interesting clarification because reading scripture, you have to put on historical glasses. You just oh, really yeah. do. And th- that's exactly the phrase I use, Katie, in class. You have to mm. re-grind the prescription in your glasses to first century <laughs> Jewish, Hellenistic, Roman Empire, mm. Eastern Mediterranean world and time. Because through those lenses, you will see the text in front of you very differently than your 21st century American, right. German, African, Chinese, whatever glasses mm-hmm. you have. That's the same analogy I use. So the first time I read your book and I started to kind of dig into what you were just saying and learning that history, so to speak, I almost kind of felt like, well, wait a second. So is God not that close to G-? Like, it almost like kind of messes with your head because that's how you've thought of it for so long. But knowing the history of the term doesn't confuse our intimacy with the Father. Like the language... And the proper interpretation of it doesn't need to take away from that intimacy that we're called to. And I do think sometimes what happens with scripture is people become very attached to a certain story or a certain idea. Or translation, your mother's affinity for her translation. Yeah. So one of the recent ones that I kind of got into a debate with a friend of mine was they said that Mary Magdalene was the woman caught in adultery. I said, there's actually no evidence for that. And in fact, it was a mistake. Like Pope Gregory made that mistake. Exactly. How long ago? I mean, centuries. And we're still... And we're still met. And and like she, I mean, she had a very big, well, but that's how I've always, like she had to kind of deconstruct, and that deconstruction can be hard. And so, you know, when people read your book or when people dig into some of that history and, and find, okay, the real actual truth of sacred scripture, it can... There's a lot of emotions built up yes. with that. So oh, yes. I think that kind of leads me to the question. We've been asking this of all of the people that we've invited onto the show. I'm a person listening to this podcast. I, I'm like, okay, you know what? I want to pick up my Bible. I want to start reading it a little more. I don't want to just listen to a podcast about it. I'm going to go get a copy and I'm going to invest my time. As somebody who has literally spent your life doing this, what is your, like, this is the first thing you need to do. This is the way you need to begin. I mean, is it, do I need to go learn Greek? Is it, do I just need to find a Bible that I like? I mean, what's that, how do I really start to dig in? My strong suggestion for anyone in that position is to don't start reading the text of scripture yet. Start with an introduction to scripture first. Mm. Something to give you a signpost, guiding directions, because you will encounter so quickly such strange things, (laughs) or you bring with you such strange understandings and explanations that you've heard all your life, like Mary Magdalene was the woman caught in adultery, that you're going to be guaranteed to err in your interpretation of the text. It's just going to be part of the baggage. So I always say, start with a good introduction to the scripture first. (laughs) Start with that have your Bible with you because an introduction to the scripture will have all kinds of references. And it it drives me crazy that authors don't do it. I understand why they don't, but it always means (laughs) you have to go to the Bible, look it up rather than provide this citation. But do that, take the time and do that and get a feel for it first. Then, then, and I would also say, start with one or the other, start with Old Testament separately or New Testament separately. But don't try and do the Bible. It's just the Mm -hmm. Bible spans over a thousand years of literature. I mean, it's just too big a chunk. Then go back and follow your interest in the text itself. But don't start there. It'd be like, I want to fix my Volkswagen engine. 
I don't know anything about it. So I'm just going to get a, you know, a guidebook or the mechanics <laughs> drawings of it. It'd be silly. There's yeah. an analogy there too with an ancient, you know, it really is part of the similar problem of any ancient text, much less mm. such a religiously privileged text as the word of God. But if you were studying Beowulf, if you were studying, I mean, Shakespeare, heck, I can barely understand a lot of Shakespeare. There's not a glossary <laughs> given, you know, at the bottom of the page. It's the same idea, I think. Yeah, that's a great encouragement, too, because I, I feel like sometimes people will say like, oh, well, I'm just going to read a gospel. It's just the life of Jesus. But I think you'd appreciate it more if you knew context and you knew history and you knew what was maybe happening in that first century. And Katie, what happens when you read Mark and then you read the same story in Matthew, but it's not the same? Oh, mm -hmm. well, wait a minute. Yeah, that's going to be confusing right at the outset or even yeah. you know, contradictions in, in the different gospels. Well, why does John have Jesus giving these long, long talks mm -hmm. and these long homilies? And he says so little in the gospel of Mark. Why are they so different? But actually starting could raise more problems that could have easily mm -hmm. been avoided if you had read an introduction first to explain, well, yes, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar, but they're not exactly identical. And John is quite different. And why is John different? And, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. We've been asking this last question to everybody joining us on the show. Do you have a favorite part of scripture? What do you love to teach? What do you love to pray with specifically? Oh, well, I know that's a hard question to ask. Oh, no, no, no. It's e easy for me to answer because I, I'm very <laughs> prejudiced. It's the gospel of Luke and Acts of the apostles. Are my oh, really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Why? This is a little pet thing of mine because Luke, I'm, I bet the farm, Luke has a deep insight about how Jesus eats and what mm. Jesus table fellowship means that the other evangelists don't seem to pick up on. And I think that's a fundamentally important aspect of the ministry of Jesus that draws us, certainly as Catholics, right to the table of the Eucharist. Mm. And the author of Luke and the same man wrote Acts of the Apostles, man or woman, we don't know, but the same person wrote both volumes. There's this recurring food and table sharing motif through both books, the Gospel and Acts both, so that once you, it's one of those things that you don't notice it until someone explains something to you. It's like, oh, the FedEx logo has an arrow in it. I never saw yeah. that. After somebody pointed that out, every time I see it, I always see the arrow. And for years, I never saw it. It's with Luke. I can't open the gospel without smelling food coming off the page. It's wow. a really, yeah, it's my favorite two volumes in the Bible. Absolutely. And remind me, who wrote Luke? Was it one of the 12 apostles? Do we, I mean, there's all sorts of different debates about the authors of different books of sacred scripture. The names of all the Gospels, truly, they are anonymous works. The ancient manuscripts do not have names ascribed to them. Those were given later. They may have been given with reason, but we don't have names actually of the authors. Luke has been described later in the early church as a companion of Paul. And that would explain an awful lot of how much he knows about Paul and Acts of the Apostles. Mm -hmm. But we don't know what his name was. Luke is mentioned by Paul. Uh, Luke is mentioned. One of the problems, whoever it is, was not an eyewitness to the gospel. I mean, because it was written much too late. So it couldn't be a contemporary of Jesus. The gospel of Luke had to have been written sometime in the late 80s or early 90s. That would mean at the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus is 33, it's the year 30 or so. And if you're going to write in the year 85, I mean, how old are you by that time? So it's very mm -hmm. unlikely that it doesn't mean there are not eyewitness accounts in it, but the man mm -hmm. who finally compiles and puts it together, 
That was done decades, decades later. So we don't know his name, but we know that he's he's someone who is probably not a Jewish convert to Christianity, but a Gentile or pagan convert to Christianity. We think he's writing his two volumes directed at a Gentile Christian community rather than a Jewish Christian community for whom there had been great prejudice in the early Jewish Christian church, a lot of prejudices about Gentiles coming in. So he kind of has a chip on his shoulder about how mm-hmm. we're worthy of salvation too. It's not just Jews. And what does Torah mean for them? Do they have to follow Torah and kosher? Do they or don't they? Which is another reason why food is so big in this gospel, mm-hmm. because kosher was a very important element for the early Jewish Christians. It's just so rich that, and, and it's beautiful Greek. It's probably one of the best, probably the best Greek in the New Testament is written by the author of Luke Acts. He's very sophisticated, mm-hmm. has a huge vocabulary. In chapter 26 of Acts, he's got all this maritime vocabulary about sailing and what kind of anchor. Yeah, he's a, anyway, it's my favorite. <laughs> I can tell, I can tell you like, I asked that question of somebody and, and they went off about the book of James for a good 10 minutes and I could have just wow. sat there. And, and when James is so short, and so it's like, huh, that's fascinating that you love such a but, short book. I, but I think too, Kate, it has something to do with, well, what if, I know more about that because that was the focus of my doctoral study. I think if my doctoral studies have been in James or the letter of the Hebrews. It might be that, but for me, right. Luke just gets all the time. In it fact, pops. When I, yeah, when I taught in one place, I taught Eucharist, the roots of Eucharist in the New Testament. I ended the course with the students had to cook a meal. Wow. And, and then we would, unbeknownst to them, we would invite almost twice as many guests to the dinner than they had expected. And then I kind of gauged how did they react to this? Is this a problem or is this a good thing? You know? Yeah, do a, <laughs> anyway. do a little feeding <laughs> kind of the 5,000. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And who do you expect to come to your dinner? You know, because that's yeah. a big issue in Luke Acts. Who is yeah. welcome at the table with Jesus? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to go. I've been rereading the Gospel of Matthew in no small part because of the chosen who spend a lot of time the show and they spend a lot of time talking about Matthew. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, well, I like the way they're portraying him. Is that the way I would necessarily have read it? It's been an interesting little exercise. Uh, that call scene in the chosen of the call yeah. of Matthew. Oh yeah. It's good. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's subtle and so not bombastic. Just, just right. He's just like, hey, you know, yeah. Yeah, it, very different from where, the Caravaggio. Matthew, where are you going? Meeting. Oh, yeah, exactly. Which it's, is like, a, I mean, a finger pointing yeah. at him across and the room. And you can almost and you just, hear a, yeah, the drum roll and the thundering and the bright yeah. light shining. On, yeah, yeah. But isn't that the beauty of it? I mean, I feel like that's the perfect place to kind of, that um, Ignatian, I mean, I'm, I'm going to pull in the Ignatian imagination with the Franciscans, so don't end the Zoom call too quickly, but that, you know, you, that there's room. Once you know that history and you know the the roots, there's room to imagine. There's room exactly. to dream. You have the colors with which to paint that background. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. And I, I tell my students over and over, imagination is the key ingredient you need to study scripture. Yeah. You need an imagination. You need the wherewithal to imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Father Bill, this has been a true delight. Where oh, can we too. follow you? I mean, do you have a podcast? Do you have a YouTube channel? You Because you should. I mean, this was a real, other than the book. How can if people I follow my camera? You would see that I have two typewriters, mechanical typewriters <laughs> behind me. So, you know, I kind of crank up the computer. You know, I, I'm no, I don't. I don't have podcasts. I don't have a Facebook page. I don't do 
You just I teach have, and you write I have books. a book. I have a book and a bunch of seminarians who can't wait to get out of my class. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we will link the book down in the show notes. It really has been a true delight. Thank oh, you so much for taking the time, Father. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for asking me. After we finished recording, Father and I continued to chat for a few minutes, and he said, I just love when people give me the opportunity to set the record straight. And isn't that so much of what we need in the studying of sacred scripture? To set the record straight, to learn what the church has always taught about this passage, to understand what something means in my heart, but then to also read it with the mind of the theology of the church. Scripture scholars help us do this. Father Burton and his book, Abba Isn't Daddy, and other surprising parts of the Bible, I find it to be a book that rattled me a little bit. Words like Abba, you know, Abba doesn't mean daddy. And he just explained to us why that's been completely and totally taken out of context and why it actually means more when we know the real meaning of these words, when we understand the full picture of something. You know, I think what Father Burton does is reveal to us that as Catholics, Scripture is intimidating, but there are resources, there are people, there are programs, there are things that exist that allow us to understand it. And, and even if it's a gradual process, even if I'm not going to understand it all the first time I read it through, and, and that's going to be true, you won't understand it all the first time through, it's still worth digging into. It's still worth having sacred scripture as a companion within our life. Sign up for all of our content that we're creating for Ave Explores the Bible over at AveMariaPress.com. You can get the emails, the Facebook Live conversations, more podcasts, social media exclusives, and use code AEXBIBLE to grab a copy 20% off of the Ave Catholic Note-Taking Bible. We'll be back next week to dig into the Old Testament, the Old Testament, which can be intimidating and confusing. We're going to dig into it. There's lots to find inside of there. Thanks so much for listening this week. We'll be back soon with lots more for you for Ave Explores the Bible. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.